from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. Thanks for joining us. I'm Matt Bush. Our show today was largely put together before this week's storms that devastated portions of our region, especially in Haywood and Transylvania counties. So while we won't be addressing that in the program, you can read the latest on the searches and cleanup with our free mobile app or at BPR.org. Wherever you are in Western North Carolina, we're standing with you and we hope you're safe, you're cared about, and we grieve with you for all that has been lost this week. In this episode of The Porch, we give some summer sun to two stories that broke earlier this month and need more time to fully understand their significance. First, we go to the Kuala Boundary. The Tribal Council for the Eastern Band of the Cherokee this month legalized medical marijuana. Now, you won't be able to buy it until this time next year at the earliest, mainly because the crop has to be grown first. Gadua LLC, the Eastern Band's economic development organization, will run the two dispensaries outlined in the plan that was approved by Tribal Council. The LLC was started in 2018 with the purpose of diversifying the Eastern Band's economy beyond gaming. BPR's Lily Kinep talked to Mark Hubble, CEO of the Gadua LLC, about its goals, growth, and plans for its new green enterprise. to discuss. This has been a project that's been going on for a long time. I think it's been over five years that medical marijuana has been in discussion with tribal council. Um, how does it feel to kind of have the, the ball really rolling uh, as we look at this as a new revenue stream for the tribe? Uh, if you had asked the majority of people five years ago, they probably would not have been in favor of medical marijuana. That the, those attitudes have changed as more and more states have legalized uh, medical marijuana and adult use marijuana. Um, there were some people on tribal council who um, I think until this year would have voted no on this uh, initiative. And mostly from talking to their constituents and how it could help them uh, for a variety of medical conditions, they... Uh, some of the council members changed their minds and they expressed that during the council meeting. How do you describe how much capital is kind of flowing through the LLC and uh, how big it is in that perspective? Uh, well, and by the end of 2018, we we're at four employees total. By the end of 2019, we were probably approaching 80. Uh, we expect to grow to probably closer to 120 uh, this year, in, in terms of employee count, our overall capital base now is over $100 million, and we would expect that that will continue to grow. We became profitable in 2019. Those profits will increase probably by about 200% in 2020 is our best calculation yet. How does it feel to see this much growth? Can you tell people how you ended up here uh, with the Eastern Band of the Koala Boundary? Uh, sure. Um, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I have a law license. I'm uh, licensed in Minnesota. I had left my law firm in 1995 uh, to go start with uh, a company called Ho-Chunk Inc. So I was their first chief operating officer for several years. Uh, I then went over to the tribe and became their attorney general 
for several years. I, I became the CEO of another tribal company in Iowa. I left there in 2018. Um, this company was just getting formed, but I didn't know anything about it. They ultimately chose me in 2018, uh, back when this building had uh, concrete floors and uh, and no walls. Great. And, and you're a citizen of another tribal nation, correct? Yes. I'm, I'm enrolled with the Citizen Potawatomi Nation in Oklahoma. Chief Sneed throughout his his time in office has talked a lot about diversifying the economy of the Eastern Band to, you know, find other revenue streams to make the tribe less dependent on gaming. Um, I was just rereading your kind of press release from the launch of of the LLC, and it really talks about kind of the the way that gaming in other parts of the country has become a lot less profitable in recent years. And so looking at how how to not make sure that that doesn't happen to the Eastern Band. Um, so you really focus on three areas, housing, um, entertainment, and then there's kind of a, a other category. Um, can you talk about how you settled on that? Sure. Well, this will be the third time I've uh, been in this senior role uh, with the different tribes. Um, and we've seen the same phenomenon happen with many tribes over the last couple of decades is that tribes that became completely dependent upon gaming revenues would see competition uh, either in adjacent states or within their own state. This, this tribe finally, uh, they decided to diversify into non-gaming areas. Um, the discussion had been on for, for many years prior but they seated the, the Kadua LLC board in 2018, really got started in 2019. Obviously, COVID has impacted some of that. Um, but in terms of what areas we uh, try to focus on, they're either areas that we have a distinct advantage, uh, a strategic advantage. Um, and so government contracting is one. Um, the government contracting uh, division just received their first 8A certification from the S, uh, the Small Business Administration. And so now they're, they're, they have the ability to move forward with uh, obtaining government contracts. Tribes have a, a distinct advantage in, in government contracting because they have the ability to sole source a government contract and because once, a, once an award is given to a tribe, it's not uh, protestable. And so it moves the process along uh, quite a bit uh, faster. The, the other area that we focused on is on housing, because housing is a huge issue in Western North Carolina in general. And so we searched, uh, I searched for probably a, a good year to try to find a modular housing company then we wanted to be able to put together a package to provide the customer the full the full benefit of the home building experience. And so we started Kadua Builders. And so the factory produces the modules. Uh, Kadua Builders then can do everything else from acquiring land to uh, the, the foundations, all of the finished work. Uh, and so we can provide a key um, ground up uh uh, home home experience and and it's, it's becoming pretty successful. I think we have 130 homes that are somewhere in the pipeline right now. Um, and our model home center 
which is here in Cherokee, will be a grand opening uh, later this month. Then we also do entertainment and um, development type of activities. Our biggest one by far is the uh, the 407 project over in Sevierville. It's about a, a 200 acres, about 160 of those acres are usable. About 30 need to be set off for green space. We will be announcing probably in the next couple of weeks, a, a hotel project that'll go on that, on that property. And um, that property should uh, start to develop pretty, pretty rapidly after that. Um, all of these items are in flux, you know, because of the Delta variant and, and COVID. But um, considering um, it's, it's been fairly smooth so far. And now with the, with the medical marijuana initiative, if you, if, if you look at the reasons that they passed, uh, ended up passing the medical marijuana, it was almost all on the medical aspect. It was not on the economic aspect. We did do analysis on the economic aspects, and the, and the models are kind of all over the place, uh, but all of them are good. The legislature, my understanding is that they're uh, pretty pleased to have us be kind of the pilot project, if you will, uh, for, for this. And um, the legislation took a, a while to draft. It went through a lot of iterations. And then once that's a governmental decision, and then once the the government made its decision, it's our, our uh, responsibility to implement that in a uh, responsible manner. Great. Yeah. A lot to unpack there. I'll go back to a couple of those things. You know, what you're saying about the models being all over the place is really just that nobody really knows how much revenue is going to come from a medical marijuana program here in Western North Carolina at this point. It's just there are, are so many variables that it's 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 hard to track is I think what you're what you're trying to explain. And so every but everybody is pretty sure that um there will there is a market for this year and that people will want it. Um, how do you explain how Gadua LLC is going to run this to folks? So what we'll probably do is we will form, in fact, we already have formed a kind of a sister company, and that has to do with jurisdictional issues and uh, banking regulations. So we'll form a sister company that it's called Gadua Medical LLC that will work with us to, but, but solely on medical marijuana. And that way you can get the expertise uh, for everything that goes into a medical marijuana program. There's obviously, there's a lot of security issues with um, marijuana. There's seed to, seed to sell tracking that has been in place. There's radio frequency IDs. There's security issues with the, uh, with the, the dispensaries, there's security issues with the processing, there's the uh, security issues with uh, transportation. All of those have to be worked out uh, with not just us, but with the police department, et cetera. I was so interested when you all purchased um, Cardinal Homes. That's the modular home company in Virginia. Um, it was, uh, from what I understand, a company that was, you know, going bankrupt and you all were able to to purchase it and then, um, you know, expand it in this region. Throughout COVID, um, home prices in the region have just been skyrocketing as people kind of 
maybe want to not be in such a densely populated areas and um it really is has just highlighted the housing shortage that was already here in western north carolina um what's it been like uh expanding in this space during this time well it's actually been um pretty good um the the modular factories uh, sales have increased. They, we did purchase the assets out of out of the bankruptcy court. Um, once we did that, adding the on-site bills, um, those are are have, have sold out as fast as we can as, as fast as we can produce them. They are they're selling. We have several several projects in uh, Lake Junaluska, um, in Waynesville. Um, in Bryson, in uh, and obviously in Cherokee, um, we're going to be starting a project in Asheville, and then we're working with uh, Mountain Projects and Dogwood Health Trust on some of their projects. So, even though COVID has made some of the the manufacturing part a little bit more challenging in terms of masking and all of that, um, the actual sales have, have have increased pretty substantially. And the overall throughput as it continues to rise, even even uh, most recently, getting employees was a challenge. Uh, when you're when 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 you're getting the company out of when you're getting the assets of the company out of the uh, the bankruptcy process, they had obviously lost a lot. They had they had shrunk down uh, to um, I think at that time they probably had maybe fifty total employees, and now we're back up to probably closer to 80 and 90 and our target is closer to 120. So overall it's uh it's growing. Um we expect it to continue to grow and um we think that ultimately the return on that investment will be uh, quite positive. We've touched on this a little bit as we're talking about the diversification of, of revenue for the tribe, how do you feel like medical marijuana is going to compare to the other businesses that are currently being run by Gadoo LLC? I think for the for a while, it'll do extraordinarily well um, because a, a business where there's clear consumer demand for it and we're likely to be the only people offering it for for. For, for a period of time, we saw this at some of the other tribes as well. And so it should do really well um, economically uh, in terms of job creation, in terms of just profits. Um, and then as they get more competition, because I, I don't think it's a matter of if, but it's a matter of when uh, North Carolina approves medical mar marijuana at the state level, then obviously the, the monopoly position on, on it will, will fade. Uh, I think it'll still do well. I think we'll have positioned ourselves well for a longer term growth strategy. The, the longer term at both of the, uh, in most of the other experiences, it ends up being dominated by government contracting, but that takes a long time to develop uh, to get the, um, and so this becomes a really good um, revenue and profit expediter, if you will. Um, because again, it's something that a tribe can do that's very difficult and uh, for other people to do. Even if North Carolina were to get medical marijuana, there'll be a limited number of licenses, there'll be a limited number of dispensaries likely. And um, and so I think that, that the, the 
the tribe will be in a good position uh, with regard to to this entire endeavor for some period of time. The way that the legislation is written right now, um, uh, Gadoo is going to be running the two medical dispensaries that are kind of outlined in that legislation. When can folks expect to see signs, buildings, doors opening? I would think um, that the the process will take some time. Uh, it'll take some time because on the regulatory side, they have to seat the boards. They have to seat the first the advisory board. Then they have to seat the the actual cannabis control board. Then they have to get the the infrastructure. You can't. We can't grow medical marijuana or marijuana at all without having licenses. There's a grow license. There's a uh, a processing license. There's there's dispensary licenses. Those will all take some time. I think uh, an extraordinarily aggressive timetable might see it in 12 months, but my guess is it's 12 to 18 months. Well, I think that's uh, all my questions for now. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure and highlight as we're, um, you know, watching this this business grow on the Eastern Band? No, I'm just excited uh, for the opportunity, and uh, I do thank you for your uh, for your time. That's Mark Hubble, CEO of the Gadua LLC, which will be running the Eastern Band of Cherokee's medical marijuana program. He was speaking with BPR's Lily Knapp. Up next, after a short break here on the porch, the 2020 U.S. Census figures finally came out last week, and it showed that Western North Carolina bucked the national trend. Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University explains next on the porch. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. Last week, the 2020 U.S. Census figures arrived, late for a variety of reasons. These were eagerly anticipated for a variety of reasons also, one being that the general understanding of the significance of redistricting and potential gerrymandering in our national, state, and local politics has grown over the past decade, mostly because we've seen that impact directly. Western Carolina University political scientist Dr. Chris Cooper crunched the initial numbers for us, how they might impact our congressional and state legislative district lines, and how Western North Carolina didn't follow national trends. So last week, the United States Census Bureau finally, on uh, August 12th, which I think not coincidentally happens to be my birthday, they released the census data down to the block level. So this is kind of the building blocks to make up uh, redistricting. So before we knew the kind of broad strokes, we knew how many people lived in each state. We didn't know where they lived. We didn't know if they lived in West Asheville or if they happened to live in Fairview. We didn't know if they were in Jackson County or in Clay County. But now we know those kind of micro level distinctions. So this information now, we're going to get into what it says, but this information now, what is it going to get used for going forward? Yeah, a lot of different purposes, but uh, the big one, the the clear uh, leader story is going to be used for redistricting. So in order to redistrict, 
We have to know how many people live not just in the state as a whole, but in each sort of micro level place. And so what we do is we put these data together and then draw lines over them, assuming that we're going to have the same number of people in each district. If it's a congressional district, it has to be exactly the same number of people. If it's a general assembly district, it has to be within 5%, plus or minus 5% of the same number of people. So there's different rules based on the general assembly or based on Congress, but the bottom line is we carve up the state into a whole lot of different districts. And again, just to reflect what this looks at, you have statewide, you have county numbers, but then you say block levels. What does that mean? That's within each county to explain to us what blocks mean. Yeah, absolutely. So think of it almost in terms of a city block. Um, And so in rural areas, it may not look like a city block, um, but the same idea is at play here. So these are just really small, granular level details about who lives where, what their race is, um, all sorts of different characteristics about them. But for redistricting, the keys are, again, how many people, where they are, and what is their race. And again, just think of these in terms of a city block. It's a very, very similar concept. So a lot of at least the headlines that came out the first day or so when these numbers had come out would have been the population loss in rural areas and the gains in urban areas. So let's talk about that first statewide. What did North Carolina see and did it fit that pattern? Yeah, it did fit that pattern. So we saw, of course, growth, which we knew we were going to have, right? So we knew a few months ago that North Carolina will get a 14th congressional seat representing significant population change. Um, But again, we didn't know exactly how that would be spread throughout the state. So 51 counties in North Carolina lost population. 49 counties in North Carolina gained population. So right around 50-50, we have 100 counties, of course, in the state of North Carolina. And so uh, in general, yes, urban areas grew, rural areas declined. So um, for example, Wake County, Mecklenburg County, and New Hanover County, which is where Wilmington is, those saw really pretty massive uh, population growth. Rural counties, for the most part, saw declines. Here in Western North Carolina, though, we saw uh, growth even in some of our very rural counties. So Buncombe was the biggest gainer, about 13% growth in Buncombe County. Macon, though, was about 9%. Henderson County, right around 9% as well. Jackson County, right at around 7%. So not just the urban centers, but also some of our rural areas also saw population increases. This affects statewide. Obviously, the, the additional congressional seat will, will, will focus on that. Has this made it any clearer where that seat's going to go and where we're going to see the growth? Because obviously, you know, in our conversations before this, kept thinking, will it be a Charlotte area district? Will it be a Triangle area district? These numbers did show probably which way it's going because we now have a new most populous county in the, in the state. We do have a new most populous county in the state. That's right. So Mecklenburg and Wake have kind of gone back and forth and back and forth um, on that sort of title, if you will, uh, over time. Um, But I don't know that we know exactly where it's going to go. I mean, so one take is that, sure, maybe it'll go to the most populous um, uh, area of the state. But you can essentially create it wherever you would like to create it. And so there's going to be a lot of attention on this 14th. It is really important because there probably won't be an incumbent there. Um, But that also, I think, obscures the importance of what's happening elsewhere in the state. If you just slap a district down anywhere in the state, whether that's Mecklenburg County or Wake County or even, uh, you know, put it down in somewhere near Watauga County if you wanted to, you still have to adjust the rest of the counties or the rest of the districts, excuse me, as a result of that. So it's like dropping, you know, a really big boulder in the middle of a lake. Yeah, it matters where it hits, but those uh, those waves are going to kind of 
ripple throughout the entire lake. So now we'll come to the 11th district, which encompasses Western North Carolina. It's probably not going to see any big changes or noticeable changes in how the district is drawn. But let's look at those population changes that you said and how you said this actually explain it too. how Western North Carolina bucked the national trend. Yeah, that's right. So I think we did bunk the, the national trend and the statewide trend and that many of our rural counties gained. Again, this doesn't mean every rural county gained in population. So Transylvania lost just a little. McDowell, um, Mitchell, Rutherford, Polk, and Graham all declined. Everything else gained at least some. So if you look at the 11th Congressional District as a whole, we right now sit about 35,000 people over the ideal population. So there's a lot of different ways to cut that. There's a lot of different ways to create the district. We don't know. It's certainly based on what other districts do. But one possibility might be removing Avery and Mitchell counties, which are currently in our district. Uh, that wouldn't get you all the way there, but it would get you very, very close. So I would expect to see some changes in the 11th, but not a massive change and certainly nothing that would uh, create kind of a wholesale redesign of the district or its political future. So you said Buncombe County saw the biggest growth in the 11th. Where did it see the growth? It saw the growth in most of the county. I mean, obviously, the city of Asheville um, saw, in general, um, a, a very big uh, increase. But Southern Buncombe County saw increases. Really, throughout most of Buncombe County, there were increases. Um, there were a couple of these very small blocks that didn't see an increase kind of towards the eastern part of the county. But uh, those were the exception and not the rule. I find it interesting, though, the New Hanover County, where Wilmington is, I think Asheville and Wilmington get compared against each other a lot because in, I know in market not size and number, they were always, I think they were right next to each other, actually. Um, anything that the data says as to why New, Wilmington, New Hanover and Wilmington grew faster than Buncombe and Nashville? You know, it's a great question. I don't know exactly why. Maybe people are loving the beach instead of the mountains more lately. You know, I don't know. I think that's that could be part of it. Um, but also remember, Henderson County grew a fair bit too, right? About 9% growth. So although New Hanover grew more than Buncombe, um, Henderson also had some some pretty large increases. Jackson had a decent size increase. Again, even Macon. So the region as a whole increased, not as much as they did over on the coast, but they still did uh, did see an increase. So Henderson seeing the growth there was that a lot of a shift from Asheville, or just people who weren't? Uh, I think a lot of people might immediately say, were these people who aren't able to afford to live in Asheville or Buncombe County are they going to Henderson County? Yeah, no, it's a great question. We don't have a great answer right now. So the data are getting uh, better. They're more granular than they used to be, but we don't know all of the details yet. So we have some ideas about race. We know the numbers of people pretty well to a very small geographic level. We don't know things about age uh, in the way that we will later on. So um, at this point, it's still a little bit of a question mark as to who these people are and certainly why they made the decisions, the migration decisions that they did. Interesting is you you bring up age. I think that leads into the next bit of talking about the growth in Jackson and Macon counties and where it happened. Where did it happen? Yeah, so Jackson and Macon counties, again, both saw pretty significant uh, increases, particularly for rural counties, and it tended to happen on the southern borders, kind of near the South Carolina line. Really, the Cashers Highlands area, if you know that area at all, that's tended to see the largest increases. There were some big increases other places. Certainly, Cullowhee grew um, a fair bit uh, in Jackson County, and there were some other spots around Macon. But that southern border, the Cashers Highlands area, saw a really large increase. And that means that these counties, while in North Carolina, are kind of becoming an Atlanta suburb exurb. Explain that for us. 
Yeah, exactly. So if you, uh, you know, I don't know that you even need a social scientist for this one. If you live in Atlanta and you want to uh, to escape Atlanta and head to the mountains, the first nice place you might be able to stop is Cashers and Highlands. And so I think we're seeing a lot of that. South Carolina as well. Cashers, of course, runs right up by that South Carolina line. So I think you're seeing uh, a lot of second home folks from Atlanta. I think you're seeing some exurb folks from Atlanta, but also that Cashers area down into South Carolina, down towards the Clemson area, you're also seeing a good bit of growth. So it's not just North Carolina folks, it's also folks from other places as well. We'll get into the political impact about what, or what potential political impact they may have here in, in just a moment. But I do want to talk a bit about some of the places that did lose. I believe in your analysis, Graham lost the most, but that might not be as alarming as everyone wants to say. Explain that for us. Yeah, that's right. So Graham did have a, a very big decline, about 9.4% um, change. Um, but Look, these are small places. Graham, there's not a whole lot of people who live in Graham County. So although that is certainly a big decline, uh, we're talking about a county um, uh, with very, very few people. So if you adjust for kind of the base numbers that are in each of these counties, it doesn't look nearly as alarming as that 9.4% might lead you to believe. Okay, now getting into some of the other bits of what these numbers mean, what the population means, and how that we look at cover how how the 11th district is going to be going forward um bunkum saw the biggest growth it is the biggest democratic it's the only democratic stronghold within the district so is that really going to change at least when we look at next year's election for congress has the population growth is that really going to change that this is a very safe republican district you know, it's too early to know for sure. Of course, we need to wait for these new maps to come out, but uh, it's unlikely that it's going to be a massive shift. So uh, a couple things I think folks should remember. One, this is a measurement update. It's not a reality update, right? So in other words, these people all lived in the 11th Congressional District as it's currently uh, conceived during the 2020 election, right? We did the census and we did the... Um, the election about the same time. So the only real political impacts we would see in the short run are from redistricting. And again, this is a change. The 11th will shift. We don't know exactly how, but it is unlikely uh, to shift in a really big way, again, with just about 35,000 people over population. I think when we wanted to go more, if you're looking to, again, to some of the more rural areas, uh, Cullowhee, Highlands, Cashers gaining population, um, does that I mean it's coming from people who probably were may not have been in North Carolina? So what's the political impact, I guess, of that? If these areas are becoming more of an Atlanta or Greenville, Clemson uh, suburb exurb, what's sort of the political implications for North Carolina, a different state, that these this population growth may bring? Yeah, I think in the long run, it's probably a little bit better for the Democratic Party. Um, but again, that's in the really long run because these folks, again, were living here during the last election. So, um, so yes, they do. They're more likely to be out of state. If you're more likely to be out of state, you're more likely to be an unaffiliated voter, and you're also more likely to be an unaffiliated voter who leans towards the Democratic Party. Um, but they were here last time. So um, I wouldn't expect to see, in terms of statewide elections, I wouldn't expect to see really any short-term effect from the census, just because it is a lagging indicator of what's already been happening. So let's look now at state legislative districts in Western North Carolina, saying that the 11th, the congressional district may not change them much, may lose some counties that are actually outside of the BPR listing area from that state legislative districts. 
Mm-hmm. Has this change again? It's obviously, very early on, but is this going to really make any big changes to the legislative districts, which obviously were already changed for the most recent election? But that was because of a lawsuit. That's right. So those were changed, or some of those were changed anyway, because of the lawsuit uh, after 2019. So I guess the first thing to to talk about state legislatures and why this might matter is this uh, this rule we have in North Carolina called the Stevenson rule. Okay, so this is from a court case, the Stevenson court ruling. And essentially what it says is that uh, if you can kind of imagine the state of North Carolina like a, like a big cake, uh, you then create pretty big slices. And those slices are all about the same size in terms of population. And then you draw up districts within each slice. So we call these the county clustering rule. And so the idea is uh, you wanna have counties that are adjacent, that are near each other, uh, and that have the same number of population or that add up to the right number of folks. And then you put them together and then you draw lines within those clusters. And so what we're going to see is the clusters shift. Uh, In Western North Carolina, we're still trying to understand exactly where they're going to shift, but it seems very likely uh, that we will see some of these changes. For example, Haywood County, which is currently um, tied in with Jackson County, will most likely uh, be um, be with Madison County. So you're going to create kind of different bedfellows and then draw lines within those. So that Stevenson clustering, again, will be the very first thing that will shift. And then the General Assembly will draw lines within each one of these clusters. Interesting partnering that. That's the the 118th district in uh, in Haywood and Jackson. That's been one outside of uh, really the most competitive district in Western North Carolina. From what you're saying there, I guess you said the lines on that could be changing, which obviously would change whether or not it remains the competitive district that it has been. That's right. Yeah. So this would be the 119. And yes, uh, you're exactly right. So we've seen uh, that be, you know, arguably the most competitive rural district in the state of North Carolina. And uh, we can certainly see some shifts in, in how that plays out. So I guess what folks should pay attention to is one, what do the county clusterings look like? and then pay attention later on to how the lines are drawn within each one of these county clusters. Because now we have the data. Um, Let's look forward here again before we get more of the data, the the more granular data, as you're saying. So what's next? Now there's already some hearings that they were the General Assembly, the people that are drawing the maps have been holding. So what's next with the drawing of the maps before we get into how that's going to affect next year? Yeah, so uh, that's right. So last week we saw again this kind of big data drop, this this uh, this Christmas present for uh, for data geeks everywhere. But we also at the same time had the General Assembly meeting uh, in this redistricting committee, and so this is where they set up the process. Essentially, they set up the rules or the criteria, and so the ones that they agreed to. Uh, one, they said they cannot use racial data or political data. So the um, political data wasn't very controversial. The racial data piece was very controversial. You had a lot of the Democratic legislators arguing that we should be able to use racial data to ensure that these lines meet the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Republicans are arguing that you should not be able to use that. The Republicans, of course, the General Assembly won the day. The political data was less controversial. Um, 
the Republicans were sort of leading with the non-use of political data. The Democrats tended to respond and say, we agree, but this does not guarantee that we won't have gerrymandered maps. So that was a little bit of the tension there. But again, nobody was really arguing to use political data. Um, they also used traditional standards like population equality, contiguity, compactness, respecting municipal borders and county borders. But the last kind of slightly more controversial one was about incumbency protection. And so the Republicans were arguing that they should have incumbency protection, that people shouldn't lose their jobs just because of the redistricting process unless they have to. And the Democrats were essentially arguing that by locking in incumbency protection, that you're locking in parts of the current map. So that was the tension there. Again, the Republicans won the day. So they've set up the rules. We have the basic data. Now they will um, collect some public input. Uh, it seems like there's likely to be spread throughout the state, various opportunities for folks to weigh in about how they think the line should look. And then the General Assembly will actually take to the mapping software and start drawing their own lines. Just to go back, incumbency protection, how does that show up in district maps? I think people hear the term, they'll know it. I know it from my time covering Maryland, a similarly gerrymandered state the last time we were going through this. Um, so what does incumbency protection look like in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So in practice, it looks like uh, somebody's address on a map. So you can imagine if, uh, if a, a General Assembly member lives at uh, you know 105 uh, Oak Street, then you'd see 105 Oak Street in Asheville, you know, that on a map. And then if somebody else lived at 200 uh, Pine Forest Trail, you wouldn't put those two people in the same district. You wouldn't what is known as double bunk those people so they wouldn't have to run against each other. You draw a line separating those folks. So the idea is, uh, I guess, if you're cynical, you're going to say this is a way to lock in the current maps. If you're more of an optimist, you might say, well, this makes sure that we don't break the relationship between legislators and their constituents. Timeline, when do maps need to be drawn and what does that, how does that affect when candidates have to file and when we're going to even have our primary next year? Because right now we don't know when we're going to have our primary next year in North Carolina. So what's a timeline you can give everyone here? Yeah, um, I'll give you a vague timeline, uh, which is uh, about the time the leaf lookers start coming to Western North Carolina when our hotels get even more full. That's about the time we should expect this to really heat up. So um, we, uh, everything is dependent on when folks need to declare for office. So the idea is, of course, we're going to have these maps decided before folks declare for office. Now, if we think about something like Congress, it's not quite as important. We've already seen, um, what, I think a baker's dozen folks that have de declared they're gonna run for the 11th congressional district. They can do that because there's no rule that says that you have to live in your congressional district. For the General Assembly, however, you do. So we're gonna expect to see more and more folks declare for Congress, but these General Assembly seats, we're gonna probably see a lot of folks wait until they know exactly where their district's gonna be. How far ahead of time does the filing deadline have to be from the primary so that we might begin to get an idea when the primary may be next year. Right. Yeah. So there, there is a kind of a statutory rule about that from time to time it does shift. Um, uh, but again, I think, uh, I believe we're talking about December uh, roughly when the, the filing deadline should be coming around. 
There is an election this year. Uh, there will be municipal elections this year. What's on the ballot for this year um, throughout the state and how that may have changed a little bit because of various factors, including the fact that the census data didn't come out, came out late and other various changes the General Assembly made. What's on the ballot this fall? Yeah, so there's there's not a ton, but uh, but most people will have some sort of um, a local election on your ballot. So um, that does not mean every part of every county, but most counties do have elections that are on the ballot. These tend to be local offices, and these tend to be ones that were not subject to redistricting. So if it was any kind of a district election, determined by population, the General Assembly said, let's just kick those to 2022, essentially, and uh, and make sure that we don't have to have folks running for uh, districts that may not exist soon. So there's a smaller number in 2021 than usual, but they are critical. And so I would just say, even though they may not be the headline makers, if you do have the opportunity to vote for these, your vote will never mean more than it means in one of these off-year elections. So just to give one kind of very small example, in Silva, North Carolina, uh, in the last decade, there's been two off, two times where the um, the local town board elections have been decided by a coin flip. So quite literally, one person showing up or not showing up determined the outcome of the election. So why does that matter? Well, the Silvertown Board has taken action on things like the Confederate monument that is on um, county property, and so they don't really like it. They've taken some other actions that some folks love and some folks don't love, and if one more person had showed up to vote, we could be seeing very different policy implications. That's Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University. You can read his breakdown of the population shifts in our region, full of charts and bar graphs, with our free mobile app or at bpr.org. We'll have more on the porch in just a moment. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. We end the show today in Haywood County, the site of so much heartbreak this week. This next story was done before this week's events, and maybe that adds a poignancy to it, as it focuses on something as old and beloved as Haywood County itself. BPR's Corey Valancourt tells us the proud past and shining future of moonshine. It starts high in the clean mountain air above southern Appalachia, moisture from the Gulf or the Great Plains that falls as rain on millions of acres of unspoiled western North Carolina wilderness. As it flows downhill, some of it will end up as Nantahala River whitewater. Some of it will end up as trout habitat in Jonathan Creek or as life-giving precipitation on a field of corn. But some of it, a precious few drops out of every billion perhaps, will end up in quart canning jars as a transparent liquid. Some name it hooch or white lightning, or corn squeezins. Others simply call it moonshine. Smooth and deceptively potent, the liquor is completely clear, but its future as a southern Appalachian tradition is less so. Moonshine exists simultaneously in two worlds, past and present. One is a shady place of homemade contraptions near backwoods creeks where illicit artisans practice their ancient craft. But that world is rapidly disappearing. Now, the survival of moonshining as a cultural phenomenon may just depend on it coming out of the shadows, going legit, with the help of mega distilleries and reality television personalities. Haywood County has always been a place where moonshine has been made. 
Haywood native Dave Angel made his first moonshine still when he was 14 for school. It is a ninth grade science project, which I don't think you could get away with today. Or maybe you could, at least in southern Appalachia. When the Scotch-Irish first emigrated here, they brought with them their cultural traditions, including the production of high-proof liquor. Yeah, it's, if you've ever been to Scotland or Ireland, anywhere in the British Isles, it, it feels very home to where we are here. Angel now owns Elevated Mountain Distilling Company in Maggie Valley, where that contraption he made in high school still sits up front. It's only for display, but it is perhaps proof of the enduring legacy of the connection between the old world and the new. Behind another set of doors inside Angel's distillery is the new, a huge, shiny, multi-chambered contrivance that looks like it's part steampunk, part yellow submarine. It's here that Angel produces a number of liquors, vodka, whiskey, and of course moonshine. It's not the 190 proof stuff, but it does come in flavors like blackberry, strawberry, apple pie, root beer, and peach. He's also got some four-year-old bourbon that's not quite ready yet. I've always been fascinated with the idea of making moonshine, making whiskey. When I was a kid, there were old timers that made it, and I always thought, when these guys are gone, this is going with them, and I really wanted to learn how. Angel opened his distillery in 2017, and Haywood County was an easy choice. There were several factors that brought us to Haywood County. One, it was home for, for my family. We, we wanted to get back here. And the most visited distilleries in the world, the two most visited distilleries in the world are in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. 23 miles from here as the crow flies, and we knew that we were in the destination where people came to experience moonshine and wanted to leave with a bottle of you know, sunshine, if you will, from, from their vacation. But there was another reason in play, likely one of the same reasons these so-called Southern Highlanders decided to stick around once they got here. So just west of our distillery is Phytop Mountain and Water Rock Knob. Uh, those are the two sources of water for Maggie Valley. All of our water starts on those mountains. It flows down the mountainside into Maggie Valley and forms Jonathan Creek. In this bowl-shaped county rimmed by mountain peaks, not a drop of water flows in from anywhere else. But once it gets here, it's already pretty clean, and it's the job of nonprofit Haywood Waterways to help keep it that way. Our water really originates as rainfall. That's Eric Romanishan, executive director of Haywood Waterways since 2010. And the water cycle does a great job of cleaning the water through evaporation and precipitation. So it doesn't pick up a whole lot of pollutants through that process. Haywood Waterways focuses on the Pigeon River watershed and engages in public education, as well as partnering with public agencies homeowners, and even municipalities on how they can fight something called non-point source pollution. That's the stuff that washes out from farm fields, like pesticides, herbicides, insecticides, all the sides. In Haywood County, of course, a lot of our headwaters areas along the county line, they're protected by national forests or the Blue Ridge Parkway or Great Smoky Mountains National Park. That forested land really does a great job of filtering any pollutants that might have come in in rainfall. And so the water that's coming out of those areas comes out pretty clean. The pristine quality of the water underlies a robust tourism-driven outdoors industry in the region, everything from kayaking to boating to recreational fishing. You know, here we sit on Jonathan Creek, and I swear I see some trout flashing in the water right now. 
It's also essential to the brewing and distilling industries, which provide thousands of jobs around the region that continue to make this a place, as Dave Angel said, that people want to come and get their own bottle of sunshine to take back up north. It's because of that water quality. You can look to Asheville and Sierra Nevada, New Belgium Brewing, Oscar Blues. You can look right here in Haywood County at Frog Level Brewing, Bear Waters Brewing, Elevated Distilling, uh, Boojum. If they can capture this really clean water, it means they have to do a whole lot less work in trying to get it ready, if you know what I mean. That's why Angel serves on the Haywood Waterways board. Haywood Waterways has been instrumental over the years in just educating our local community about the importance of taking care of our water. It is so pristine and pure, and we want to make sure it really leaves Haywood County just as good as it came through the ground and flowed through the valleys and the mountains. It's clear that good, clean Haywood County water is readily available. But if that good, clean Haywood County water is going to leave here in a bottle, there are some other ingredients needed. Acquiring those is a different story. I spent uh, the majority of my childhood uh, on a farm over in the Francis Cove community of our county. We raised and sold uh, produce and vegetables, uh, apples, uh, any, any, anything that grew, uh, we just about uh, had our hand to it at some point in time, making a living for our family. Alongside his grandfather Frank, father Doug, and uncle Gene, Greg Christopher grew up working both the wholesale and the retail sides of that farm stand, which became well-known throughout the region. I learned how to run a cash register whenever I was about eight years old. Before I would uh, go to school in the morning, part of my responsibilities would be to get up and go down and uh, set the uh, the produce uh, racks up, and then I would run the cash register until the, uh, the school bus came. When the school bus uh, came, then, of course, I'd turn it over to my parents, and uh, they, they would operate it throughout the day, but in the afternoon, I came right back to my job again. Although eight-year-old Greg Christopher didn't know it at the time, there was something a little different about some of their customers. We kept uh, a lot of uh, 50-pound bags of sugar, lots of quart and half-gallon jars that, uh, that we sold. And of course, hey, at the time, I had no idea what that was exactly for. Christopher didn't stay down on the farm. Instead, his career has taken him across the country and across the state, from the governor's mansion back to the hilly coves of his hometown. Now 61, Christopher is serving his final term as the elected sheriff of Haywood County after a lifetime in law enforcement. Many years uh, later, I think back on it, and I've probably got a good feeling of, of what exactly that, uh, some of that might have been. As an adult, Christopher did indeed figure it out. Growing up here in Haywood County, I I would say that probably uh, for people my age and older, everybody knew of moonshine. It was just something that you knew was happening in Haywood County. It seemed like it was just part of mountain culture. And indeed it was. Celebrated for centuries in story and in song like this one from country music icon George Jones. Pass it around. My 
mighty, mighty pleasing. Pappy's corn squeezing. But there's one big problem with that, according to Sheriff Christopher. Well, it's illegal. Perhaps we forgot to mention that. Moonshine is a generic term for any untaxed liquor. Although around here, it's a specific term for a jar of that white lightning George Jones sang about. While the moonshiners of old used the same ingredients Dave Angel does, Angel's liquor is only different because it's taxed and regulated by the state. If it's not, it's a crime to produce or to possess, and not one of those look-the-other-way crimes either. Sheriff Christopher said he didn't encounter moonshine much when he was a member of the North Carolina State Highway Patrol, but he certainly encountered it in his time in Haywood County. Kyle Parati covers crime in courts for the Waynesville Mountaineer, Haywood County's oldest newspaper. So Haywood County Sheriff's deputies responded to what was uh, described as a mental health incident. It was December of 2016. Uh, they arrived and were able to take care of that pretty quickly. Um, but they also found some marijuana and some moonshine, which they determined to be non-tax paid liquor. Uh, they eventually charged the woman at the residence with uh, possession of both of those items, and she was brought to trial within about a year. Although the charges against the woman were eventually dropped, the contraband was ordered destroyed because you don't just get your weed or your shine back once your case is over. But she wasn't ready for it to be over. So the defendant in that case actually wanted to keep the liquor, and she ginned up a lot of support. She wanted to donate it to a local museum. Parati's story about the impending destruction of the moonshine drew divided public opinion, but he said the loudest voices in the room didn't want to see it just go down the drain. There is, however, another explanation as to why the woman wanted her moonshine back so badly. And whose moonshine was it? Well, it was allegedly Popcorn Sutton's. Marvin Popcorn Sutton was a legendary moonshiner who earned his distinctive moniker when he got into an altercation with a popcorn machine at a tavern. Born and raised in Haywood County, Popcorn Sutton is the most famous or infamous moonshiner of them all. Maybe another reason the same Haywood County town that gave rise to Sutton, Maggie Valley, is home to Dave Angel's distillery. Oh, I definitely knew Popcorn. When I was 16, that's who he bought liquor from. He gets mixed reviews here in Haywood County. When you see the movies, when you see him on TV, he comes across as the jolly old moonshiner that everybody loved. And there was definitely that side, and he knew when to turn that on to make a sell. But he also sold liquor to 16-year-olds. Emmy Award-winning documentarian Neil Hutchison knew Popcorn Sutton as well. He recently wrote a book about him and captured Sutton in action for his 2002 film, The Last Damn Run of Liquor I'll Ever Make. And I was in this. Yeah, there's sweet corn. Uh... Yellow corn malt and sugar and water. That's all in it. Like I said, this is the damn last run of liquor that men JB will ever fool with. Because when I'm gone, the damn liquor's gone. And I'm just about gone. And he was just about gone. Sutton committed suicide in 2009 rather than go back to prison for moonshining. They don't make them like popcorn anymore. But that doesn't mean the art of moonshining died with him. Now, a new generation of moonshiners are raising awareness of the liquor and the lifestyle thanks to a reality TV show on the Discovery Channel called Moonshiners. All those guys on the show, I'm, I'm fortunate to know everyone that works on the show. You know, interestingly, 
almost all of them live within about 30, 45 minutes of, of our distillery in Maggie Valley. So it's not unusual to run into them. Kelly Williamson has a distillery called Adventure Distilling Company in Cosby, Tennessee. Mark and Digger on the show, they live right there in the Cosby area with, with Kelly. So it, 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 there's a community of people that, that have this same interest, and, and I'm just fortunate to be in it with them. That community is helping to keep alive this important mountain tradition, something that would have made the 14-year-old Dave Angel very happy. And what I found out now that I'm no longer a teenager, it will always be here. There will always be old-timers making it. Uh, I know families that generation after generation make it. Uh, a friend of mine right now, his son makes it with him, and his father makes it with him, too. It's three generations working together making moonshine. I'm Smoky Mountain News Politics Editor Corey Valencourt, BPR News. story is from the Maggie Valley Band. Thanks for joining us for The Porch. The BPR News team is Helen Chickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Knepp, Matt Pikin, Megan Kane, Corey Valancourt, and me, Matt Bush. You can hear episodes of The Porch, plus BPR's two other podcasts, The Waters and Harvey Show and Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century, anytime with the free BPR mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. Stay safe. We'll see you again next month on The Porch. The Porch.